The second lesson this morning comes from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and you will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, um, in the San Francisco earthquake of 1989, I remember being in my home in the East Bay, which is just on the eastern side of the um, bay that uh, is right near San Francisco. And when the earthquake started, there was a great moment of confusion. So those of you that have lived in an earthquake region, you know that you grow up um, with earthquake drills on a regular basis uh, inside your school classrooms. And so even though we had grown up with those earthquake drills, that didn't mean that we were actually ready for an earthquake because what an earthquake drill cannot provide is an actual earthquake. So you don't know what it feels like until it's starting. But I remember that the shelves started shaking, and I remember trying to run down the hallway. We lived in a sort of a large rambler, which meant that there was no downstairs or upstairs, but we had a very long hallway. And I remember trying to run down the hallway, and it felt like you were on one of those moving pathways that you happen upon at the airport. And then suddenly, It was over. We had picked up a few books that had fallen off of the shelves, and the earth was quiet again, like it had never happened. Until we were able to turn on the TV, and we found out that our earthquake experience, as wild as it was, actually paled in comparison to what had really happened over the course of the region. A small section of the Bay Bridge had collapsed. 
The double-decker freeway, which ran through the center of Oakland, had fallen. And in fact, the World Series game, which was right at the beginning of its stage, they were getting ready to do the national anthem, was stalled and then eventually postponed. What had felt small to us in the East Bay was actually a frozen moment in time across the region, and it would take years and years and years to rebuild. When the earth moves beneath our feet, it takes time to take stock of the new lay of the land. What happened? What has fallen? What has been destroyed and what needs to be rebuilt? Those are the questions that we ask in the wake of an earthquake. Well, the church at Philadelphia, friends, was in a post-earthquake space, both literally and figuratively and metaphorically. They lived in a region that was known for earthquakes, so much so that the archaeologists that have come in to do work around that region have trouble figuring out which is from which time because so many of the artifacts have been sort of um, clustered together because of the earthquakes. But what they can find out is that the people of this region soon enough stopped living in the city centers and started living dotted among the hillsides. Part of that is because they were farmers. They did create some of the best wine in the region, as we heard read in our Reader's Theater. So they did have something valuable in being sort of on the hillside. But in addition to that, living in the city center had just become plain dangerous. They never knew when it was going to fall again. They never knew when it was going to be shaken by another quake that would cause a certain amount of destruction. And there was a lot of Roman interest and Roman investment in this city of Philadelphia because don't forget that at this point, the Roman Empire was expanding. We've been talking about that over the last few weeks. And their expansion had set their sight towards Asia, Asia Minor. This was a really important area for them to gain control over because through Asia Minor, they were going to be able to gain access to the trade roads in the east, right? So all of their focus was coming into this little area. And those of you that were here last week in worship, you, got, you gathered in our um, bulletin, we had a map of all of the churches that we've been talking about, these seven churches um, that are dotted across the western coast and region of Turkey. And if you take a look at those, or maybe your Bible might have a map, or you can look it up on Google or whatever, but you'll see that all of these churches that we've been talking about in Revelation, they sort of hold the gate to this area of Asia Minor. And that is part of what we can gather by reading this, that Romans had a deep investment in figuring out how to sort of control that territory. And so they did do a lot of rebuilding in Philadelphia because they had a vested interest in being able to do that. So the placement of this city, in fact, was ideal for a lot of reasons. It had great farmland, it was a gateway to the east, but the challenges of it were its geology. And this late, this late first century church was in a position where suddenly they had to learn to stand on their own. 
If you think about these sort of farmhouses dotted across the countryside, you could figure out how important it was for certain groups to come together. And this group called Christians, they suddenly had to figure out who they were in the space of all of the different demographics that were at play in the first century. They had to find their own legs. They had to discover that they were no longer people of the synagogue and the way that they had previously thought of themselves. And they had to trust that the God who had led them so far into the place that they were now on this sort of cutting edge of the region of Asia Minor would continue to lead them through even as they faced new tectonic shifts, both literally and figuratively, in terms of what was happening with culture around that space. So there was palpable worry in this church. There was concern. Would we make it? Would we be able to find sort of enough momentum to carry ourselves forward? There were a lot of things that were going against this little community. Would they just be snuffed out by the groups that had more power? Or would they find what it takes to make their place in the world? I think it's interesting to note that in light of this extreme challenge, that we find the most encouraging words of all of the seven letters to the seven churches, the most encouraging letter is the letter to the church at Philadelphia. In fact, here's a piece of trivia for you that you might not know, that some churches have actually named themselves Philadelphia Church, like our neighbors on 24th, because of this particular letter that was issued uh, to uh, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Because this is the most endearing letter. It's the most encouraging letter. It's the only letter of all of the seven letters where there's not that second half of the letter that comes across as an exhortation. But in fact, all of it comes across as encouragement. And I want to just take a second to look at the metaphors that are used in this letter to help us to get a picture of what it is that, that the Spirit is up to in this book of Revelation. Let's just take a peek at what's going on. We've got the doors that cannot be shut, right? That comes up in the beginning, and then it's reiterated a little bit later down the letter. We've got the key of David, which is actually a reference to something that was happening in Isaiah 22, but it would have been common in the imagination of our first century friends, they would have been able to make that connection right away to Isaiah. But the key of David, which has to do with the building, right? We've got this other imagery that says, if you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. I will write on you the name of God's city that comes down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem. That's just sort of a picture of all of the metaphors that are building up here in this text. You see, the language is all about buildings. And how ironic is that? In a place where all they have experienced is the destruction of their buildings through earthquakes. And not only that, the language is about buildings that have both literal and spiritual meaning. Buildings that are talked about in scripture as the promise of God's presence with God's people. 
That's all of those allusions to the temple. And more than that, buildings that have a link to the past. All of this talk about the temple is the way of the Spirit telling this early church, don't worry, even though you are not being allowed in the synagogues anymore, you still have a connection to this ancient narrative. You still have a connection to this story. You are still a part of God's long story of salvation. You see, this group of Christians in Philadelphia, they might not feel like they fit in, but what this letter assures them is that the temple is still for them too. But Jesus is not just offering a repeat in these images. What's happening is that we're starting to get a slight change in the metaphor, and we're starting to see that the temple that is being formed is new. So it's connected to the past. It has one arm that is stretched out into God's history of salvation that started in the person of Abraham, that was then built through the person of David and Solomon, but that now is connected to the person of Jesus, embodied in the person of Jesus, and stretching out into the future through this little church at Philadelphia. How amazing it is that they have the assurance that they are part of this story. And not only that, if we see what's happening in this text, we can see that the building that is going to come into play is not going to be built by humans. It's not just going to be another Roman building project, which is what they would have experienced on a regular basis. In fact, it's going to come to play into the form of a promise that God has a future for them, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has not forgotten them, And that instead, God is leading them into a strong and powerful future where the temple will be built in them. Where the pillar will be written on them. The rebuilding after a quake will be the rebuilding of this people. And making them into something new, something that holds hope, something that holds fast to the word, and something that beckons them towards the new city. Not a city that will look like a project that the Romans are up to, but a city that God will build all by God's self. You know, in the midst of all of the ideas that surround Revelation, I'm very aware that this text has the potential to cause a lot of fear-mongering. It's one of the least preached texts. The the book of Revelation, as we've been talking about over these last few weeks, it's one of the least preached texts that we have in our Bible. It's one of the texts that we have the most disagreement about as Christians. We talked about this last week, but it's important to remember, too, that Luther actually wanted to throw the book of Revelation out of the New Testament altogether because it caused too many problems. So we've had disagreement over the years about this text. But it's important to remember that in light of all of these various ways that it can be interpreted, that the drive and the thrust and the outcome of the vision of Revelation is hope. 
And we can see that in every letter that we've read so far, and especially in our letter today, that what God is up to is building a people of hope. The new city, the new Jerusalem, the place that will be built by God. The place where God will not use the local shifting pillars in order to build what God is up to, but instead God will use the beloved community that cannot be torn down by an earthquake in order to accomplish God's purposes. Friends, ultimately I think that the book of Revelation has good news for us. It has good news for us even to share with our neighbors and our neighborhood. Good news for us to share with those that we come into contact with on a regular basis. Because it means that above all else, that God is not done with us, but is still at work in making all things new. And perhaps, you know, we haven't talked a whole lot about this whole category of thought that we have as Christians called eschatology. And eschatology just means end times. Um, And we're not going to talk a lot about that today. I just want to let you know, but I'm going to give you some language about how it is that we talk about that within our faith. And by the way, uh, in the fall, we'll be doing a Bible study on areas of revelation that we haven't been able to get through through our preaching. So we will have a chance to wrestle with this text a little bit more. But the word eschatology literally in Greek just means the study of the end. And that's not really new information. That, that idea has been around for a long time, right? There's this whole idea that, that in, a fa- in, in a sense that the world will come to some sort of close, that there will be a final narrative, that there will be a climax in which things come to some end. The unique perspective that we have as Christians, no matter what our views are, about eschatology is that all of us get to Revelation 21, which we will preach on later, where there is the vision of the new city, of the new Jerusalem, of the place of hope. And so even as we travel through our current days, which feel rather dystopic to many of us, We have to have that vision of the future always before us, somehow balancing out the realities that we see in our current day and age, recognizing that we are people who are set towards hope. And not because God is going to wave his magic wand and make everything okay, but because the culmination of the reality of the person of Jesus Christ will be vindicated. And that's our hope. We don't have anything other than that. So regardless of how we see end times, regardless of how we read Revelation, all of us can agree that we are people that are set on hope. And that means that we put our feet to work, right? 
Because even in the text that we've read today, it means that God is doing something in us, in our community, through our bodies. And if it's through our bodies, it means that it is going to travel into the road that we travel wherever we go on our weekly circuits. And that we can become beacons of hope. That is our call. That was the call of the Church of Philadelphia, and it's the call that Jesus curates and beckons and forms in that church to reassure them that they are not forgotten, but that God is at work making all things new. Well, friends, at the close of the 1989 earthquake, the vision of the city of San Francisco took a huge shift. The freeway that was down on the east side of the city that was called the Embarcadero Freeway, the plan became to pull that freeway out altogether, and that was a huge project. It took years. And what that revealed is that there were places within the city that had been sort of hidden, and they were centers of industry, and all of a sudden the removal of the freeway made them visible, and so the developers swooped in. And so now the area that is known as South of Market has become sort of this hopping center of lofts and tech. And in fact, that's where AT&T Park is right now. So you can go see the Giants play if you want to pay $150 for a ticket. (laughs) But that area wasn't visible before because it had been hidden by the freeway. Now, in no way, I promise you, would I ever suggest that the redevelopment of a city is like the New Jerusalem? That is not what I want to say, because we here in Seattle, we know what redevelopment feels like. We know what it does. We know some of the effects of gentrification, right? We're dealing with that in very difficult and hard ways. And yet we see what it can do to a city, so we recognize the complexity and the nuance. So in no way would we ever say The New Jerusalem looks like the redevelopment of a city in the 21st century. But what we can learn from a picture like that is that out of rubble and destruction, a new vision can come. And as a matter of fact, the city of San Francisco, after the earthquake, looks radically different than it did before. Now, who are the decision makers? that cast that vision? That's the question. Who is the decision maker in Revelation? It's Jesus. Who is the vision caster? It's Jesus. So out of the rubble and the destruction of the earthquake, a new vision will be built. It won't look like the redevelopment of our cities. Those get decided by different folks. But it'll look like the reigning lamb, the one who has come, who knows suffering, deep in his heart, the one who knows death. He's the one who's going to cast the vision of the city. Friends, let's move forward in hope. God is not done with us yet. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the power of these seven churches, for the vision that they received, and especially this church at Philadelphia. 
Help us to hear the encouragement from this text today. The fact that you have not forgotten us, just like you did not forget this little church in Philadelphia that folks can't even hardly find because they sat on a fault line. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Friends, let us stand.